The scripture reading this morning is from Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 20. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. This is God's word. A familiar carol goes, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. Ponder those words for a moment. The hopes, all of your hopes, not just all of your hopes, but all of the hopes of those around you. Not just of those hopes today, but of those hopes that you have and all have for tomorrow and the next day and the next day through all the years. Think of all the fears that we have. Not just your fear, but the fears of everyone around you. Not just today but tomorrow and the next day and the next day. The carol says, all the hopes and fears through all the years are met in thee tonight at the birth of Jesus Christ. Do you believe it? Are you experiencing it? Our Father... Only your spirit can bring us into the reality of this event to understand the fullness of it, to experience the reality of it. Open our eyes, open our hearts, open our minds, and ultimately our voices in response to what happened that day, that night. Amen. Ultimately, there is one hope that not only supersedes all other hopes, but when realized, actually satisfies every other hope we might have. 
there is one fear. If vanquished, conquers all other fears that we might have. I think of our hopes. It might be what's going to be underneath the Christmas tree. It could be in the position we seek, in an identity that, that we wish to have. It could be in relationships we long for, or good things happening to ones we love. All, all of these hopes are there to, to bring us a joy. We think ultimately these things will, will make us happy. Today's story, we have a joy, a singular joy that is offered in Jesus Christ. That when we experience that joy, we realize there's no other hope that matters. There's no other hope that can truly fulfill us for we can be fulfilled by God himself. Think of the things we fear, usually what we might lose. We might lose relationships. We might lose positions. We might lose security. We might lose our sense of ourselves. And ultimately, we might lose our lives and we have to face our mortality. These are fears we have. But if one fear could be conquered, that is a fear of our God, if we can come to realize that this God has entered into life in such a way that there is no longer a need to fear Him, but instead to realize the vastness of His love in such a way that we can trust Him and His love for all of our fears. For we are secure in Him. That fear conquers all other fears. The message of the angels this night cries out, Do not fear, for the greatest fear can be taken care of and is in this child. And he cries out, you have, We have news of the greatest possible joy when fulfilled all other hopes subside. So let's look at this passage. The same region there were shepherds in the field keeping watch over their flock by night and an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. So this passage actually begins with the shepherds great fear. And it's interesting because they're out in the fields watching their flocks by night. And it's usually in the dark when we have our greatest fears. But they're very, very comfortable in the night and in the darkness. It's only when the light comes and the glory of God shones around them that the fear grips them. A great fear grips them. And this is the natural response that we should have 
to the light of God. It's the natural response that person after person has. We, we, saw it, we see it earlier in the book of Luke when the father of John the Baptist is in the temple serving and an angel, an angel of the Lord appears, it says, and fear overcame him. We see it in Peter when Jesus has his disciples cast their nets and he fills their nets with fish and Peter begins to realize exactly who this Jesus is. And it says it falls before Jesus and says, leave me, I am a sinful man. We see it when the disciples are, are caught up in a storm and they're afraid. And Jesus calms the storm immediately. And again, they see who he is. And it says now they are terrified, even though the storm has stopped. When three disciples go up to the Mount of Transfiguration, they're, they're pretty excited to see Moses and Elijah But when God speaks, it says they were terrified. The natural response to coming into the presence of God is to see ourselves as we are and to be terrified. Yet, in the Western culture, there is a lost sense of the fear of God. Somehow we have superseded all attributes of God with God's love as though God could put aside his holiness he could dispense with his justice he could really stop being God because his love is so great he can overlook our rebellion against him to do this we have to reinvent who God is. And that's exactly what is happening today. Uh, Pastor Brandon has brought it out on a couple of occasions that Christian Smith, a sociologist out of the University of North Carolina, studied our youth and saw that true faith in God is being replaced with a moralistic, therapeutic deism. And Christian Smith describes it in this way. He says, the beliefs consist of one. God exists. He created and ordered the world. And he watches over human life on earth. Two, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. Three, the central goal of life is to be happy and is to feel good about oneself. Four, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. And five, good people go to heaven when they die. That's the religion of our youth, and they got it from those who are older than them. Contrast that feel-good attitude about God with Isaiah the sixth chapter of his, his prophecy, he gets a vision of the throne of God surrounded by cherubim who cry, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Lord of hosts. 
His glory fills the earth. And Moses, Isaiah immediately responds, Woe is me, I am ruined. I am a man of sinful lips. To see God in his glory and his holiness puts the light on us. And if we are honest with ourselves, we realize we cannot stand before a holy God. Cornelius Plantinga in his book, Not the Way It's Supposed to Be, a Breviary of Sin, says this. First, we deceive ourselves, and then we convince ourselves that we're not deceiving ourselves. Okay. Uh, That's me. And that's all of us when we try to reinvent God according to how we want to see him rather than as the true, holy, righteous, just, and loving God that we have. The shepherds got it. They were greatly afraid. But the first words from the angel are, fear not. You don't have to be afraid. But they don't say fear not because God isn't going to judge you. He's going to overlook what you've done. He is so loving. No. They say fear not because there is good news. There is a Savior who has come for you. And notice that the description in the passage, it says there's good news. And that's enough to say that. But it's a good news of joy. It's enough to say that, but he goes further. It is good news of great joy. The famous preacher, 19th century preacher, Charles Haddon Spurgeon put it this way. The joy which this first gospel preacher spoke of was not an ordinary joy. For the angel said, I bring you good news. That alone is joy. He continues, I bring you good news of joy. But he declares something more magnificent. Good news of great joy. Every word is emphatic, and if to show that the gospel is above all things intended to promote and will most abundantly create the greatest possible joy in those who believe. That is the angel's message, because a Savior has come. There is no greater joy than to know you need a Savior and the Savior arrives. Think of yourself caught up in a fire, flames surrounding you. There's no way out. Your death is imminent. And a fireman breaks through and rescues you. What relief, what joy that your life has been spared. Think of being attacked, and it looks like you're not going to make it. Your life is in danger, and a policeman arrives, takes down the mugger, and we go, wow, we just missed it. What a joy. Or an apparent death diagnosis from a doctor. But he comes in, a a renowned surgeon comes in, 
and does what no one else could do with this surgery. And you are given new life. What a joy to realize you need a Savior and the Savior arrives. That's what happened. Jesus Christ came. We needed to fear God, but a Savior came. We see it in Isaiah. Woe is me. I am ruined. I'm a man of sinful lips. And the next words, Lord, send me. No matter what the task, send me. Because in between, one of the cherubim went to the altar and took a coal and touched his lips and said, your guilt is taken away. Your sins are forgiven. Isaiah is transformed. And that altar and that coal from the altar of sacrifice is a picture of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for us. And he say, angel says, he is a savior for all people. Every type of person. It is not every religion is fine. There is only one savior and he is for all people. He is for the Christian and the Jew. He is for the Muslim and the Buddhist. He is for the atheist and the theist. He is for the king and the shepherds. He is for the saint and the sinner. We all need a Savior, and there is only one Savior, and he offers himself to all of us. If we would say, yes, we have a, then we have a Savior. And he says, unto you this day is born a Savior. Shepherds, he has come for everyone, but no, he has come specifically for you. Do you hear God's word saying that to you? All of us here. And then go a step further to you personally. You need a Savior. He has come to you. See, there are people who say, I, I don't need a Savior. I think I can, I think I'm good enough to get out of my own. He says, no, I come for you as Savior. You need it. There are others who say, my sin is so great. The pit I have dug is so deep. There is no one who can get me out of this. No, he has come for you as Savior. There are even those of us who say, well, I don't know if he really exists. He's come for you, even in your doubt. See, a Savior has been born for you. But we also see in this passage, we have a Savior has come and born for the nation to fulfill all the promises. For this one is called Savior and he's called Christ. He is called Messiah. He is the promised one. It's no coincidence that this passage begins by placing the event in the reign of Augustus, Caesar Augustus. For Caesar Augustus is exalted in a way that really only Christ should be exalted. The terms that are used here 
were also used of Augustus by the Romans or by himself. He was called Savior. He was called Lord. He himself said that he brought peace to the earth. The same words used there. Luke is using them to say, no, this is a pseudo-king compared to the real king who has come for us. A commentator, Joel Green, writes it this way. The point is that another ruler has been born, one whose dominion is both universal and everlasting. This good news is seen as countering the exalted claims made by and on behalf of Augustus. On the other hand, Luke's notion of good news borrows from Isaiah 40 through 66. There the herald defines the good news as the coming of God, the salvific reign of God in peace and justice on behalf of the outcast. Luke then has drawn on the language embedded in the culture of Roman religion and legitimation of power and the culture of the Jewish trust in divine intervention and rule. Luke shows the importance of this child in exalted salvation historical terms, grounding his interpretation of Jesus firmly in Israel's hope for divine deliverance. What he is ultimately saying is, Jesus is the promised Messiah who comes to fulfill the hopes of all of Israel, superior to all of Rome. And Jesus said it, towards the end of his life as he overlooked Jerusalem and said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, oh, how I would have gathered you as chicks under my wings, but you would not have me. He's king, rejected. But he is king who will come and he will rule. And all of the rulers of this world will bow before him. And if that is the case, we can trust the sovereign rule of our God today, no matter who the rulers are. We need not wring our hands. He came as our personal Savior. He came as the national Savior of Israel. And he comes as Savior of the world. The one who comes to reverse all that is in the curse that sin brings upon us. For he is called Savior, Messiah, and he is called Lord. And Luke is using this word not as it is used of other people, for there is nothing earthly about this event. He uses Lord as he would of God himself. The Lord has come to right all that was wrong. See, our world is broken. When we hear the news, when we look at the pain of those around us, if we look at the pain in our own hearts, we say, this is not right. Something is wrong. This is not the way it is supposed to be, as Plantinga titled his book, The Brevery of Sin. Sin has done something to warp our universe. Eva Hoffman is a uh, Polish, Jewish person, an intellectual whose parents had to flee Nazi Germany during the time of the Holocaust. And she's written about exile in her memoir, Lost in Translation. And she she says this, 
since Adam and Eve left the Garden of Eden, is there anyone who does not in some way feel like an exile? We all feel ejected from our first homes and landscapes, from our first romance, from our authentic self, an ideal sense of belonging, of attuning with others and ourselves completely eludes us. She's captured what we all feel. It isn't right here. And as scripture says, it's because when sin entered the world, our relationship with God was severed. Our relationship with each other became broken and twisted, and even our relationships with ourselves has turned us so that we do deceive ourselves and then convince ourselves we are not deceived. It's why we have all these defense mechanisms that our psychologists point out because we can't even live with ourselves truly and honestly as we are. And our world is so broken around us. But he has come. He has come as Savior to the world who will one day put it all back together as it was meant to be. He comes as personal Savior. He comes as national Savior. He comes as Savior of the world. He has come to bring the kingdom of God. And as we have said often from this pulpit, that kingdom will one day fully be realized where this world will become like it was originally intended. And he is breaking that kingdom into our world even today in smaller ways. Recently, I saw a bumper sticker. It read, We can't cure the world of sorrow, but we can choose to live in joy. Joseph Campbell. That's the best solution, this side of heaven, that we could have. Realize we can't cure the world of sorrow, so let's not wring our hands over it. Instead, let's just focus on the good things Let's have positive thinking so we can have joy. Choose joy. Ignore the world and all that is happening there. It's the only way to have joy here, this side of heaven. But the angel offers a much better solution. The man of sorrows will come and take the sorrows of the world and heal this world one day. That is the basis of the joy we have. That is the hope that the angels speak of. That is the solution that is there for us. And that is why we look to the future to understand the present. You know, It says that here, there is a sign to you. A baby is taken, wrapped in cloth, and laid in a manger. Toward the end of the book, Luke parallels that statement when he says, Jesus' body was taken, wrapped in linen cloths, and placed in a tomb that had been cut into stone. That's a very intentional parallel. 
The angels cry out about this Savior being born, wrapped, placed in a manger. That Savior is Christ, whose body is taken, wrapped in linen cloth, and laid in a tomb. It is his death for us that makes him Savior. The man of sorrows experienced every possible sorrow physically and emotionally on this earth so that one day there would be no sorrow. That's our joy. So what's going on today? What's, what's happening today? We, we look around and we don't see the, the world fixed. We don't see our own lives fixed. We're not the first ones to ask this question. Henry Wadsworth Longfellow addresses it uh, in his carol, I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. Longfellow had recently lost his wife in a tragic fire. He just received news that his son, whom he had tried to keep from joining the army, had been severely wounded in the Battle of the Church of Hope in Virginia in the Civil War. That's what inspired his hymn. He says he heard the bells on Christmas Day. Of course, they're melodious, they're joyful, they ring out peace on earth, goodwill to men. It's supposed to inspire our joy, but it didn't to him. As he writes... See, here's the bells. Then from each black accursed mouth, the cannon thundered in the south. And with the sound, the carols drowned. Peace on earth, goodwill to men. It was as if an earthquake rent the hearthstone of a continent and made forlorn the households born of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And in despair, I bowed my head There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. War rent this nation. And it was hard in that circumstance to say, wow, joy to the world. But Longfellow continues, Then pealed the bells more loud and strong. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail. The right prevail with peace on earth, goodwill to men. He let the gospel sink into him. And he realized this child that was sent as Savior shows us that God is not dead, that God is not asleep, That one day, God will bring all that he promised. But we are struggling through this period till that day. But we can look to that day and trust in that day and trust in that God for all that is happening. You know, in World War II, the Allied armies realized that if they could create a second front... They could defeat Hitler and win the war. 
And so on June 6, 1944, they began an invasion in the coast of France, which is called D-Day. And they were successful to get those beachheads, and which allowed them to bring in more armies and supplies and create that second front. It was really on D-Day that victory was accomplished. But there are many battles left in the war before the victory was finally realized. The angels come today, that night, and say, a Savior is born. It was just the beginning. The Savior is born to you. He himself would go through many battles, a tremendous war to go to the cross to become that Savior. D-Day has come. The war is really won. There are many battles till the end, but there is ultimate victory. Now, this story is true. Luke puts it in the historical context. It's not a myth he makes up. It was during the reign of Caesar Augustus. It was in a census similar to other censuses of that time period. It was a census before the one that Quirinius, the very famous census he mentions in the book of Acts, that Quirinius made. He places in the historical context. And throughout the book and throughout uh, the telling of the story of Jesus, there will be proof after proof after proof, culminating in the greatest proof of all, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Luke begins his books saying, this is history. I did my research, I consulted numerous eyewitnesses, and I'm putting together the story because it is true, and I want you to know it is true. But you know, there's we continue the debate on earth about whether this story is true or not, but this passage shows us There is no debate in heaven. A single angel comes and makes an acclamation. A Savior is born to you. And the response of the heavenly hosts breaks forth in an affirmation that this is true. And they can't help themselves as they break through the multitude of hosts Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those whom he is pleased. Heavens declare this is true. Debate it here. But it's resolved there. But this also shows us something else. One angel comes at first. That angel gives us a theology. There is a Savior. This, should, this is great news. This is, it should bring great joy. A Savior has come for you who is Christ the Lord. The angels experience that. That's why there's a multitude of angels that show up. They can't help but burst 
into the heavens for the angels to see them because they know the experience of what it means that God is becoming man to save humanity and to save you. And they can't contain it. And so they burst forth with the excitement first of the glory to God in the highest. In the excitement for all of us, peace on earth among those with whom he is well pleased. This morning, I give you a theology. The Savior has come. I pray that the Lord will make this a reality in your experience. And that as we continue this service, we will make the same joyous proclamation that the angels made. Glory to God in the highest. Peace on earth among those with whom he is well pleased. Our Father, we thank you and praise you for the truth that our Savior has come.